Hey everyone, it's your host of See Jurassic Right, Stephen Ray Morris here, just dropping in to say, I hope you've been enjoying all the new episodes in 2023 and 2024 so far. There are new interviews with filmmakers, musicians, scientists, the screenwriter of Land Before Time, audio essays about the rich history of the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World franchise, and all the news about the upcoming animated show Jurassic World Chaos Theory and the as-of-yet untitled Jurassic World sequel coming next summer. I really need your help supporting the show right now, and you can do that by leaving a tip and or giving a monthly follow on Patreon, patreon.com slash There are $1 and $5 tiers, but more is coming. Sharing the show, giving five-star reviews in Apple Podcasts, and liking and commenting on social, at Stephen Ray Morris on Instagram and Twitter, goes a long way to help boosting the show's visibility again online in this new era. I'm an independent podcaster and your support is so important and means the world to me in keeping this podcast running. Link to the Patreon is in the show notes. Hold on to your butts. Thank you. And now on to the show. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Filled with on fright, see Jurassic right, with an ember light, see Jurassic right, see Jurassic right, 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 see Jurassic right, 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 see Jurassic right, 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 see Jurassic right, see Jurassic right, see Jurassic Park. Let's just dive in. It says in your bio, you're an aspiring historical geologist and paleontologist, a lecturer in the field of paleontology and geology. And I love this deep time traveler. It's Cameron Muskelly. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me on the on the podcast, Stephen. I thank you. So I guess the, the question I have to start with was, were you a dinosaur kid growing up, a, a rock kid, um, that kind of thing? Were you outdoors a lot or, or you know, watching Jurassic Park, things like that? I was absolutely 100% a dinosaur kid. (laughs) Um, I had a lot, I had nicknames back in school. Um, A lot of my friends and peers would call me Dinosaur Boy because (laughs) I had um, dinosaurs everywhere. I knew a lot about dinosaurs. Every single book that I read was about dinosaurs. And there would be some times in school where I would rock around with, you know, the incorrect pronated hands and just roar. So (laughs) I was definitely the dinosaur kid growing up. Jurassic Park, unfortunately, I didn't grow up in, I I wasn't born in 1993, so I couldn't watch the original Jurassic Park um, movie, but I I watched it on VHS all the time. And I actually saw Jurassic Park 3, the third film, which I know a lot of people are going to (laughs) say it's the worst one, but (laughs) I, I watched it in the theater with my dad in 2001. And I think I saw Jurassic Park on VHS and that really um, captured me and inspired me um, because, you know, when I saw it was the first time for me to actually see dinosaurs on screen um, that were kind of portrayed as like real animals with social behaviors. Um, mm-hmm. I think the only dinosaur movie or show that I actually saw was probably like Barney or, <laughs> you know, Lamb Before Time. But nobody really I don't think anybody gets inspired to be a paleontologist to watch Barney. Um you know, but uh, Jurassic, <laughs> be Park interesting. Was definitely, <laughs> Jurassic Park was definitely um, one of those movies that I really enjoyed growing up. And I watch it all the time. I actually have, um, I think, a Jurassic Park vinyl um, sitting on Whoa. my um, uh, sitting on my dresser right now. And um, I would watch Jurassic Park all the time. 
Um, I've watched it probably so much that I can honestly recite every single word by script from the from the actual movie. Um, that's how much I've watched it so much. Oh, me too, for sure. I mean, and that's interesting because kind of a question that I, I think of a lot um, because uh, I was around six when Jurassic Park came out. And for you, were you a dinosaur kid first and then got Jurassic Park or was that really part of it? I actually got interested in dinosaurs before Jurassic Park. So I actually got um, my mom's coworker got a dinosaur toy. I think it was like a, a Triceratops. And she actually got that for me. I think she got one of the old zoo books and it was titled Dinosaurs. Oh, and um, I think the, what's the, I can't remember the paleoartist's name. I think his name was Walter Stout or something like that. William Stout. Um, he was the paleoartist who did a lot of the art in that particular book. And reading that and seeing that really inspired me. And uh, some of uh, Rudolf Zangler's books on dinosaurs um, really inspired me to learn about these creatures and that they're not, you know, monsters at all, that they have social behaviors. These are animals that were living in the wild, um, just like lions and tigers and things like that. And, you know, learning what fossils were. So when I learned about dinosaurs, I didn't really know much about fossils because I've, you know, I've only read them in books and things like that. And so learning about that really um, got me on track to wondering you know, what a fossil was, um, how did, how do we know dinosaurs existed based on their fossils? And so going that, going to that route and actually reading books for me, um, has definitely inspired me. Cause I think most people, or at least some people get in, get into dinosaurs by like, you know, movies and things like that. But I think what first got me into dinosaurs was the toys and the, um, the books. No, that's really cool. I mean, it's, it, it's just like a thing for, for kids where it's like, I don't know. I can't think of very I think almost maybe like that's why people become like firefighters or something. Cause it's like, you know, there's fire trucks and stuff that kids like to play with. And it's probably the same because, you know, there's so many dinosaur toys. Mm -hmm. uh, that made me think of what was your kind of first kind of, what was your, <laughs> what was your first experience with an actual fossil? Good question. Um, so my first experience with an actual fossil um, began when I was, probably in the second grade. And um, there was a teacher that I had in the second grade who knew I was like the only dinosaur. Well, me and another student were really obsessed with dinosaurs. And every if I was on my good behavior, um, she would take me down to a, a fourth grade teacher's class who had a personal fossil collection. Whoa, and that's so cool. She took me down. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was really fascinating because since then, I've never actually felt or seen an actual fossil before, let alone anything from coming from a dinosaur. Um, so every time I was on my you know best behavior, I would go down in her class and she had a personal fossil collection and she would show me the fossils that she had in her classroom. And so she pulled out a drawer and in that drawer, she had all types of fossils like trilobites. Um, she had like plant fossils, but I think the most memorable fossil that she had was actually a polished stone that I learned was uh, coprolite, which is uh, dinosaur feces. Oh my gosh. Any chance to like hold on to something that has been, that's millions of years old. Like that's yeah. Like just to have that kind of connection to that is so wild and so cool. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And, and actually after um, she wrapped up the tour, she actually gave me a fossil. Um, it was actually a crinoid stem. So a crinoid is an echinoderm that kind of related to starfish and things Ooh. like that. And um, this particular one was kind of like it was uh, it was based on a stem. So crinoids actually grow up into like little columns and they break, break down into different pieces after they die and become fossils. And what she gave me was just a section called a crinoid stem. And I later found out, you know, doing some research that it actually comes from Tennessee and it's carboniferous and carboniferous in age. And that's really how I started to connect um, my love of fossils to my love of geology. And that actually is separate from my love of dinosaurs and fossils. Well, I mean, that was one of my questions, actually, was um, because I also in, uh, when I was in college, I flirted briefly with um, majoring in geology uh -huh. and I guess what about those two fields complement each other and what drew you to that as well? So after she took me in 
So and I got to see the false collection and got a fossil for myself. I did a lot more quote unquote <laughs> digging um, to try to figure <laughs> out what I was looking at. And so when you're finding fossils, the best thing you want to understand is you want to understand the rocks that are the rocks that are around you. Um, what fossils? I'm sorry. What rocks contain fossils? And so I learned by reading books and watching videos that the best rocks to find fossils in are sedimentary rocks, anything that is composed of sediment. Um, hundreds of millions of years ago or thousands of years ago. And so I learned that finding sedimentary rocks, you can actually find fossils within them. And so by doing that, there was, I used to be in the teaching trailer. So there was the trailers and then there was the school outside. And so behind the teaching trailer was a rock, was just dumped piles of rock uh, called <laughs> shale. And shale is a sedimentary rock that forms from clay deep below the ocean. And I was just, and, and knowing to knowing that I could find fossils in it, you know, definitely put me on a track and say, hey, if this rock, this rock's called shale, shale has fossils. So let me see if I can find a fossil in this rock that supposedly has, um, this rock that supposedly has fossils in it. So I went behind a teaching trailer after school and I just started flipping over like shale rock and seeing if I can find anything. And right when recess was starting to end, I actually found a fossil and it was an impression of a trilobite. So if you see on my Twitter why I'm posting so much about trilobites, that's the reason, because it was the first fossil that I ever found. Oh, my God. That's so the idea of digging for fossils. And it's like, where are they and how, what's the best places to find them? But the idea that you were like, I'm going to go out back and I'm going to I'm going to find a fossil. That's so cool. Yeah. And, and, and after that, I really got interested in uh, rocks and minerals and things like that. So another separate story is how I got interested in the whole geology part and how I got connected with that and connected fossils with um, rocks and geology was, I think in the second or third grade, um, I was walking around and I found just a rock on the playground. And being me, I like to break stuff, okay? (laughs) So I got the rock and I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna just throw it against the ground and see what happens. So I throw it, I think I threw it against the concrete or cement or something like that. And it broke open. And after that rock broke open, I saw shimmery crystals of like quartz, mica, feldspar. Um, I later learned that it was granite. And that granite used to be, used to be magma that cooled underneath the earth's surface. So it's a rock in my hand that used to be magma, but it's got crystals in it. How did it form? How, what 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 does this tell me about an environment, you know, hundreds of millions of years that we can't see? It's underneath the Earth's surface. So I, I that really um, helped me into understand geology. I checked out all types of books on geology and I actually found I think I used to think that, you know, concrete was part of a meteorite. <laughs> so it, I had a, I had a rock at the time and it was kind of gray and it was kind of dull and I thought it was a meteorite, but I found a white crystal that was inside of it. And I was in daycare at the time. My mom had to drop me out to daycare to go to work. Um, I think it was during like summer camp or something like that. And I had um, a person, um, one of the camp people, um, tell me what type of mineral it was. Mineral it was. She said it was quartz. So I, that led me to do a lot more investigation in quartz. I never heard of that before. So I went to the library, checked out a book on rocks and minerals and started reading about the mineral quartz and how it formed. And it really opened my eyes to just geology, um, to understanding fossils in deep time and how vast the earth was. And so connecting geology to fossils led me to understanding what paleontology was. Paleontology is basically the combination of geology and biology. And I got to throw those two together, how to look for fossils how to understand the rocks that are inside of them, throw those together, a little combination of um, biology and you've got paleontology. Wow. Yeah. It's, I, you know, loving dinosaurs, loving rocks, but in a sense of like that, you know, deep time, like thinking about it and this sort of, I, I don't know, it's like almost like a relief or something like thinking yeah, about how like a old... realization. Yeah. And so my question for you, cause um, you know, deep time traveler, like, I know we're not going to parties right now. We're all being safe. But mm-hmm. I guess if you had to explain deep time at a party, like what would be that kind of cocktail party kind of answer? It's Deep time is really interesting, but it's also really, really hard for people to get and understand because you're talking about time in order of hundreds of millions, if not billions of years. 
And we can't, I can't even remember what I had for breakfast the other day. Okay. <laughs> so thinking about something that's hundreds of millions of years old is really difficult, especially if we, you know, cause we think of time as like maybe hundreds of years, same seems like a long time or thousands of years seems like a long time, but hundreds of millions of years is even longer. And I think people who hold an object that's hundreds of millions of years old, if not billions of years old, you know, they it kind of makes you feel tingly inside a little bit yeah. because this is something way before human history. Um, none of this stuff has been written down by humans, but it's still there and it's still that old. So I would honestly say I use, I use something called the pen method. And I, I try, to, try, try to put it in a way where people can understand it. So I try to take... The pen method as take a pen, take a freshly new pen that you pulled out of a box and you have that plastic ball that's on the top of the pen that protects the ink from the pen. So it does. So the pen doesn't dry out. And I explain to people that the plastic ball on the top of the pen is human history and everything below that, everything below the pen from the tip of the pen all the way down to where, all the way down to the level where you're holding it is the entire history of the earth. Wow. I also uh, tell people to get a toilet, um, get some toilet paper and stretch the toilet paper all the way back. The little fuzz at the end of the toilet paper is human history. Oh my and God. the last toilet paper that you just pulled off is the beginning of the earth. Ugh. Do you think that's why people like dinosaur or like, I should say maybe dinosaurs are sort of almost like an entry point to the past and prehistoric life and, and, you know, just prehistoric, you know, continents shifting, you know, all that stuff. And yeah, because maybe dinosaurs are much more like, I don't know, manageable, like ex thing to existentially think about or something. Right. Uh, dinosaurs are kind of just the past. You know, when we think of dinosaurs, we think of something that lived in the past. And I think people are really, I think, Dinosaurs are definitely a gateway to deep time and they're definitely a deep a gateway to um, science because that's something that we can recognize. I mean, everybody recognizes a Tyrannosaurus, you know, everybody will recognize a Triceratops. And oh, we're we're so fascinated by it because we're it's so big. But as I tell people before, that dinosaurs, it's just a small window, it's a small piece of the entire history of the earth. Dinosaurs are actually more recent. Than many people think um, Tyrannosaurus Rex is is close to in more time to us than tri than Stegosaurus was Ugh. and during the Jurassic. Ugh, and so T-Rex is more in time with us than Stegosaurus was to Tyrannosaurus. That fact just makes me want to pass out. Like, it's just <laughs> right. It's it's so it, I mean, but it's like you said, it, there's like a tingly element to it. Like, that's there's something very. um I don't know, invigorating about that idea and, or even, you know, I think because we're so used to dinosaurs as these kind of, here's a Parasaurolophus, here's a T-Rex, but it's like, these animals were around for millions of years. So it's like how many actual individuals of these dinosaurs were around, like is so right. wild. And I think some people have like this notion of all the dinosaurs living together. Um, but no dinosaurs lived in each and every day. We have time periods that we separate things in and, you know, the earliest dinosaurs showed up in the late Triassic and some of the last dinosaurs showed up at the end of, at the end of the Cretaceous. You know, Velociraptor and Coelophysis never saw each other because they're on two different continents and two different times. So I think people, you know, they mash all the dinosaurs together. But no, dinosaurs themselves have been separated by time for hundreds of millions of years. Guys, they should put a Coelophysis in Jurassic Park. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> I, I've seen them in games, in the Jurassic Park games, but unfortunately nothing Coelophysis like, except for maybe Dilophosaurus. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I mean, in general, I feel like the Triassic is pretty, pretty underrated oh, as yeah. far as, as far as the dinosaur, as the three dinosaur periods go. So how did you go from having these experiences to then? Because I think a lot of listeners and I know a lot of people who want to get into you know, different fields, especially in science. I think we're so used to these kind of capital letter paleontologists capital, but it's like, what do you actually do? And so how yeah. did you go from, you know, like any dinosaur kid to actually studying it? And, and, you know, you've done so much in, in the field already. Like, how did you go from, yeah, just liking it to making it a career? Good question. So 
I lived in an area where it wasn't really good for paleontology. So not a lot of people knew what paleontology was. And not a lot of people people cared about paleontology. So I lived in an area where it wasn't really appreciated as much as I really wanted it to. And so when I moved, when I was in early high school, um, I got connected with um, uh, particular institutions like the the Georgia Mineral Society, which is more um, in more to the geology rather than just dinosaurs. But um, I I still loved minerals. I still love geology. And so that really connected, connected my love for that. So I got connected with that and I actually started to do um, talks when I was little. I actually started to just give talks on basic geology. Uh, when I was little, I would stack up books on a chair or on a stool with my oh. little camcorder. And I would just talk about geology and paleontology um, to people that, you know, wanted to listen. And so I, I still have, you know, CDs and things that my mom burned and uh, I can, you know, just watch it from time to time. It's like, hey, that's me. Oh, and so um, cool. <laughs> so um, I, I started to do little talks and things like that on paleontology and geology. And when I moved, I got connected with the George Mill Society and I gave some of my first talks there. Um, I think my first talk was on dinosaur paleobiology. And I gave a talk on that. Um, I was actually in the junior section because I was in high school in the Georgia Mill Society. But the members of the Georgia Mill Society were like, this this kid's an adult because he knows <laughs> a lot of things. So <laughs> because I was under 18, you know, and I knew a lot about geology, there's like, well, this guy fits right in. So <laughs> no need for calling him a junior in the Georgia Mill Society. After that, I, I started to give a little bit more talk. So that was my first talk on talking about, you know, dinosaurs and what their environment was like, their biology and things like that. Um, the first, the second one that I gave was on dinosaurs in Georgia. And believe it or not, we do have dinosaurs in the state. Um, they're not complete. They're not anything that you see in Montana or Wyoming or Utah. Um, they're disarticulated, but nevertheless, we do have, um, dinosaurs here. And I gave a talk on that and some of the dinosaur fossils that we have here in Georgia. And then I just started giving a little bit more talks. We have a fossil section in the Georgia Men's Society. So I gave talks on various. Um, topics about fossils. Some had to be doing with trilobites, others with um, crinoids or ammonites and things like that. And so do, doing those individual talks led me to actually give more talks in the future. Um, I've given talks now. I've given talks at museums on paleontology and geology in Georgia. I've given talks to school groups on paleontology and fossils and geology. I also do give talks at the Fernbank Science Center um, about two Saturdays a month. I would go and bring in my personal fossil collection and I would actually talk about fossils and geology to the general public um, connected with the Fernbank Science Center. Oh, wow. That's so that's so cool. Through my work on ologies and then doing this podcast, I've discovered the world that is like science Twitter and the, the sort of joy of having my timeline now be filled with, you know, guess the skull and uh, find that lizard and getting to see all these you know, amazing people do all this cool work and share all these cool discoveries. And my curiosity, though, is like, does doing the social media aspect, does that actually help your work at all? Or is it more of a tool for science communication? It's actually helped me personally because I was, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of avenues to share my love for paleontology. And so I actually created a Facebook back in 2013 and just to share my love for fossils and know I was really into dinosaurs. And I actually started to build up over time and actually started to get a little bit, you know, serious with it um, and just discuss things on geology. That's actually how I got connected was some leading paleontologists, um, dinosaur paleontologists, um, to be exact, like, you know, Thomas Holt or James Kirkland and things like that. Um, people who are, you know, really have, who are like pioneers in the field of um, paleontology. And so they saw what I was doing. They saw that I was really interested in paleontology um, and they, you know, would share my things and things like that. So I think creating a social media in general has personally helped me to get in, in involved with paleontology and to, you know, speak a lot about on a field in which I really, really love. That's so that's so wonderful. I mean, again, if if you're growing up and you don't have a lot of resources or, yeah, you don't you know, I'm the dinosaur nerd, but none of my friends are. It's, it's, it's to me, it feels like it would be very exciting being a kid now and getting to go on Twitter and literally getting to interact with my heroes or getting to right. interact with 
these people who, I mean, it, it's so cool. The, the kind of barriers and that sense of like, there's not this kind of ivory tower. I mean, maybe there still is, you know, outside of social media or something like mm-hmm. that, but it's like, again, I, I feel like even in the realm of like podcasting, I, I got into this career a little bit and I owe that to the idea that at least some of the people who I ended up working for were accessible via social media. So I'm very thankful for that, that people are willing to take the time to, I mean, again, like reaching out to you and reaching out to, to other scientists I've been chatting with. It's like that you guys even want to, you know, talk to me and stuff is just so cool. And I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's been uh, a truly, it's been truly great. Um, For the Twitter part, um, I was still kind of getting new to Twitter. Um, I didn't, I still, you know, wanted to post things about geology, but it was actually another geologist who said, Hey, you may want to go and probably make a Twitter account because there's a lot more geologists and paleontologists on there. And not just that, but there was actually a whole community of scientists on Twitter. And so I didn't realize how big, you know, the science Twitter was until I actually said, huh. Those are some of my friends that I'm on Facebook. I have Facebook friends with, or you know, these are some of the geologists that I've been trying to connect to, and I haven't had the time. I haven't had any chances to connect with them. So you know, creating a Twitter um, was really, really cool. And then you know, being able to post a lot of my things on Twitter and then talking about you know who I was and who I am and my passion for paleontology has been great. And I'm, it seems like I have a quite of a bit of following. I wanted to ask what, how would you, or I guess, how would you distinguish a, a geologist from a historical geologist? Cause I, I've actually never heard of that before. That sounds so cool to me. So yeah, there's, there's different like names given for geologists. You have like petroleum geologists, you have like mining geologists, you have geologists who specialize in ocean geology. Um, you even have like think people who are geomorphologists who study, you know, the landforms. But um, I'm really so historical geology really has to do with um, the history of the earth. And it really has to do with, you know, deep time. Um, you have, you know, people like geochronologists who would um, specialize themselves or call themselves deep time geologists because they deal with things that are older than are quite old or about 100, 100 million years or billions of years old. And so historical geology really has to deal with the entire history of the earth from four and a half billion years to where we are now to understanding the modern world. And I think for me, historical geology is taking something that's, say, hundreds of millions of years or billions of years old and then trying to explain various different times uh, during Earth's history, because Earth is extremely vast. There has been so many things that have gone on. Um, hundreds of millions of years, if not billions of years. And so each window, each fossil, each rock, you know, is a window into the Earth's past is pretty much you're taking something from, you know, this location, you're taking something from that location, and you're trying to connect it together to try to create essentially a big portrait of the history of the Earth. So pretty much what historical geology does is you're taking uh, a piece of, a piece of geological history here and taking it from a different location and you're trying to create a portrait of the entire history of the planet is it oh i you know what i was gonna ask <laughs> what what's the oldest thing you've you've held or you know excavated or anything like that so the oldest thing i've held is probably a meteorite um that's probably the oldest thing you can definitely um hold um meteorites are about 4.5 billion years they're they're the solar system <laughs> so that's some that's one of the oldest things i've pulled the second probably oldest thing i think the oldest thing that i found was a trilobite and i think that one's about 497 million years old or so um okay. that's a fossil that i found here in georgia um that i found personally um i've also have a piece of the acosta nice from um canada that's about um 4.2 billion years old And I have a stromatolite fossil from Australia that's about 3 billion years old. Truly fathoming that. I mean, do you ever just like sit and look at it and you're like, oh, like, ah," you know, like I feel I'm not being very eloquent about it right now, but there's just, I I don't know. Does it, does it give you perspective on anything or is it just the, you know, I, I think sometimes and why like working on ologies has been inspiring to me is I think, 
this idea that it's like, you know, these aren't just these concepts and things that are like an interest. It, it's this is this stuff affects our daily life. And I, I don't know. I feel like if I had a three billion year old fossil in my, uh, you know, in my room, I feel like every day I'd be like, just look at that fossil. Think about how old it is. <laughs> you know, like that's my version of meditation. You know, it's just a look. Yeah. I mean, I guess kind of. I mean, just thinking about dinosaurs or thinking about deep time. Really, like the truly, I feel like there's nothing more calming to me than thinking about that stuff for some reason. For me, it calms me every day. Um, so I'm actually looking at a mosasaur vertebrae right now that I have. I have fossils all around me. So <laughs> I've got things wrapped up. Um, I've got rocks everywhere. So just it's going to be pretty hard trying to move with all these rocks around. So <laughs> <laughs> definitely looking at a fossil and knowing that it used to be part of a once living organism that used to live when humans weren't around anywhere, we weren't anywhere. Um, and the environment was different. You know, I look at a fossil and the climate was different. The different, you know, the continents were different. The ocean levels were different. Every single thing was different about the earth when this organism lived. And having it in my hand right now, being able to touch it and hold it and interact with it, I think is, is really inspiring for me and inspiring for others who, you know, want to be paleontologists. Because we have a different perspective on things, you know, when you hold something like maybe that's a World War II relic, you know, it's like, oh, this is documented in the history books. When you're holding a rock that's about four and a half billion years old and you didn't see it, you know, um, form or anything like that. But, you know, from your understanding of geology and how it formed, I think it's I think it's pretty incredible to me. And it actually gives a perspective on life that humans have only been here for an instant. We are honestly a blink of an eye, a snap of a finger. To the history of the to the history of the planet Earth and to the history of the universe, and so I think that really gives a perspective on that we need to take care of our Earth because we're only going to be here for, you know, uh, as much time as we we can. You know, we are like I said, a snapshot. We are a snap of the finger on the history of life on Earth, and so you know, knowing that other animals have gone extinct, knowing that other climates have changed over time knowing that environments have changed over time i think people need to have that perspective on how we can understand the history of life on earth so we can better understand not to screw things up right that, that we're doing right now oh i love that that's really beautiful if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Can you tell me some stories about fossil hunting trips? I am like, my dream one day is to like take this podcast on the road and get to mm -hmm. dig sites. But uh, yeah, what is, what is it like, do, you know, going fossil hunting and, and going digging? Ugh, it, it's truly incredible. It really, truly is incredible. I look, my first fossil hunting trip was back in 2016 when I was, I think, a junior in high school. I was probably a junior or sophomore in high school. And there was a trilobite site in Georgia called the Conasaga Formation. Um, that 
dates back to about 497 million years old, and that's to the Cambrian period. Um, this is the upper portion of the Cambrian. And there was down at a creek um, called the Conestoga River, and there was a bed of shale. And so splitting that open and then finding complete trilobite fossils, I think, was incredible to me. And since that trip, I've gone on to various um, fossil collecting sites. Um, I just collected fossils from the time of the dinosaurs last year. The first time um, I was in Mississippi and I went to the, what was it? The Coon Creek um, Ripley Formation. That's about 70 million years old. And I was finding just shells and things like that from the time of the dinosaurs. Um, I was also in the Demopolis Formation, um, Demopolis Chalk Formation in Tupelo, Mississippi, collecting Cretaceous fossils there. Um, I was just there um, to those uh, various locations just back in March of this year, collecting fossils and found just giant oyster shells. Um, one called Exogyra, um, which is a classic fossil from the Cretaceous um, that would have sat down on the bottom of the sea floor and had a small lid to open and close to feed. And when I was actually, the coolest thing about collecting fossils is you're the first person to see it ever. So when you're picking up a fossil and you find it, you're the first person to see that fossil ever, you know, and I think it's kind of like treasure hunting to some people. Um, But it's kind of it just kind of just opens your eyes that these were once environments that no longer exist and that probably won't exist ever again. You know, when I was walking, um, collecting fossils from the Silurian period in Tennessee, you know, these limestones that were deposited was once part of an ancient ocean floor. And I'm finding the remnants of an ocean that used to be here. But where's the water? Where's all the water? Where's, where did everything go? How did the environment change? And so I think going fossil hunting opens your mind to understanding that what, what you're standing in right now isn't what was it like hundreds of millions of years ago. You know, the, the towns and cities that you typically see, they weren't here. No, there were no cars that were here. This was all beachfront property hundreds of millions of years ago it's you just reminded me i mean one of the sort of iconic moments from the jurassic park book that they don't really ever translate into the movies is this moment where alan grant is envisioning the the past and he can see in his mind's eye what this used to be so that reminds me of that that's that's really yeah just talking to some people and even for myself personally, it seems almost daunting. The idea of going fossil hunting, was it just through, you know, the, the mineral society and things like that, that you kind of like found, you know, the right places to go. Is it something you have mm-hmm. permission for? How do, how does some of that stuff work? That actually ties back to social media. One of the first fossil hunting trips was uh, a person from the Georgia mineral society, but I really wanted to go. My, most of my collecting has been in Alabama. And I've collected Carboniferous fossils, plant fossils, and older things in Alabama. And so I got connected with a couple of um, fossil um, fossil collecting people um, from Facebook. And I got sent, you know, friend requests and things like that. And I think back in 2018, I went on my first fossil hunting trip with a good friend of mine. Her, her name is Jess Cost. Collects crinoid fossils and preps them. Museum quality specimens. Um, she has found some incredible fossils. Um, from Alabama, and she took me to Huntsville, Alabama, and Huntsville is known or should has been known for fossils probably since the nineteen eight uh, early early eighteen hundreds. Um, people have been collecting fossils there for a long time, and there's still beds, thick beds of limestone, and you can go to many of these places that have these thick beds of limestone and find things like crinoid fossils, um, brachiopods, trilobites, corals. And that was kind of my first realization that, you know, there's so many different things out there, you know, and fossils are not hard to find. You can go in your backyard. I've, I've literally been on the side of a road where rocks are exposed and found corals, uh, coral reefs. I found coral reefs. And coral heads just on the side of the road. Um, I have found giant pieces, of, giant pieces of trilobites just on the side of the road. Um, I have found plant fossils in coal seams behind a gas station. 
<laughs> oh my god yeah oh i should it's like i'm gonna just start digging up my mom's backyard right now after, this, <laughs> after our after our chat i'm like well let me see if i can find some fossils out here you know i mean the past is all around you you just gotta you just have to know where to look everybody well maybe maybe see if there's some pipes or something underneath your your yard before you start digging but <laughs> yeah i've done that before I, I i can't tell you how many times i dug up my mom's backyard and i accidentally hit a pipe <laughs> it wasn't fun but you know it would definitely come in handy in the future. Uh, how about some favorites? Favorite dinosaurs, favorite fossils, favorite rocks? Um, is there any particular, or maybe not favorites, because that's always, you know, nobody wants to be stuck with the one favorite. But is there, <laughs> is, I guess, is there, there a certain dinosaur or maybe a certain prehistoric life form or a type of rock or gem that you particularly love talking about and sharing with people? Hmm. Yeah, that's... Favorites are difficult for me because I love a lot of things. So my favorite fossil, hands down, I've got like three favorite fossils. Um, I think the top of my favorites definitely got to be the trilobite. I love trilobites. I think my second favorite has to be the crinoid. And my third favorite is probably brachiopods. Love brachiopods. Cool. Um, but if we're talking about favorite dinosaur, um, my favorite dinosaur has changed over the years. Everybody's favorite dinosaur has got to be Tyrannosaurus, but I want to be outside the box. There's one dinosaur that I really like. I keep changing it from time to time. Um, there's one that has been in the news very recently, um, Spinosaurus Aegypticus. We all know probably Spinosaurus from the Jurassic Park 3 movies, but it, the, <laughs> the, the structure of it and the anatomy has just been so different. It's got webbed feet. It walks on four, it walks on four legs. You know, the sail is completely different. It's got a fluke on the back of the tail. I would have never imagined Spinosaurus going through a completely different revision over the years. And it just completely came out of nowhere back in 2014 when the paper was published on um, the environment and the anatomy of Spinosaurus, knowing that okay, we knew Spinosaurus was aquatic because of the, you know, the morphology of the skull and everything like that. But knowing that it would have had like a fluke tail and the sale would have been very different and it would have mainly, you know, eaten fish because I think we think we think of Spinosaurus as like being this monstrous, you know, dinosaur that tears open planes and eats other dinosaurs. <laughs> but it would have to be quite gentle with the seven foot spine, um, that sail that's running down, running down its back. Um, I don't think it would have done any large, heavy fighting with that delicate sail. Yeah, it's definitely not punching T-Rexes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, don't get me started. <laughs> um, that that T-Rex and Spinosaurus fight will always tick off so many people. You got me thinking just right now about this Spinosaurus discovery. Is Would you, I mean, it, it's maybe hard to quantify, but is that one of the kind of biggest uh, dis paleontological discoveries this year? Like, it, it certainly seemed like to make a big splash on social media for sure. Yeah. I, uh it it can it varies it definitely varies um i think the one that definitely gets the coverage is that mummified notosaur from canada i see Ooh. that all the time more than spinosaurus really so that's definitely taking the headlines more than spinosaurus had but i think um yeah spinosaurus is definitely kind of a big deal when it comes to um dinosaur paleontology and people focusing on um the evolution of spinosaurus um, we found Spinosaurus in some very weird places, and there's even been a paper that has been published of the various dinosaurs from Asia that possibly could belong to, you know, Spinosaurus aegypticus and not say anything uh, of a different species of Spinosaur. But, oh. um, you know, there's some people who are saying, no, no, that's not true. It's probably just <laughs> another species of Spinosaur. Can't be Spinosaurus aegypticus itself. But, you know, it's it's definitely quite interesting because... The first Spinosaurus was what destroyed in the World War II bombing raid in the 1940s. And so we all, all, the, all of what we had was a few pictures and possibly even a few teeth. Um, teeth are definitely going to be the most common. I have, I'm actually staring at a Spinosaurus tooth right now that ah, I have so cool. um, in, in my um, in a, um, framed case. And I've got a picture of the, um, I've got a safari um, Spinosaurus action uh, figure oh, cool. right next to it. So yeah, like I said, so the first uh, Spinosaurus was destroyed in nineteen in, in the nineteen forty four um, World War II bombing raid, and that's really all we had. Um, we only had a few pictures, and that's what kind of like collect. That's what kind of like paleontology is. 
is you're going to have, you're not always going to come up with a complete skeleton. You have to try to take what you have and then try to use other organisms or other animals related to that animal to try to, you know, get a better picture of what that full animal would have looked like. And, you know, Spinosaurus is definitely one of those dinosaurs that we are actually learning more about um, because of, you know, of the, some of the various expeditions that's been going on in the in North Africa. Um, there's even been Spinosaurus fossils that have been illegally sold on the market. Um, I've seen Spinosaurus fossils being sold before. And I think I think it's illegal to actually sell Spinosaurus bones in Morocco. The teeth you can actually sell because they're very common. But the bones themselves are illegal. And I think a lot of the fossils from Spinosaurus are quite interesting. Again, like I said, they've been illegally sold. So it's definitely harder for paleontologists to try to, you know, make a picture of what the full animal looked like, especially if you don't have a lot of the bones. So we have to take what we know of other Spinosaurus and from the bones that we do have to try to reconstruct a skeleton. And even if you do reconstruct that skeleton, it's probably not going to be the correct skeleton. There's going to be other paleontologists who are going to disagree with you and make different revisions of it. That brings me to a question that I've asked everybody so far. And it, I use my myself as an example where it's like, I don't have to go back and fix somebody else's podcast uh, in my job. You know, I'm focusing on the future again from from a non-scientist perspective that there's this element of you are constantly looking backwards and or, you know, looking back, I should say, and looking at the work that has come before while still trying to discover things for the future. Like, how do you balance that? How do you balance, like, looking at the work that's come before and then, you know, contributing your own piece to it? And how much of it is an improvement or, mm -hmm. you know, um, again, like you say, that there's these kind of disagreements with with reconstructions and things like that. Yeah, it's quite an interesting perspective because, you know, not like I said, not every scientist is going to agree with you. Um, one person's, one scientist's perspective is going to be, you know, almost completely different, if not completely different from another scientist's perspective. But I think it's good. Um, I don't think science is always supposed to agree with one another. I mean, eventually, you know, a larger consensus is going to agree. But I think that's what's so enjoyable about being in science and so enjoyable about being in paleontology is that there's so many good controversies and everybody is trying to figure out the same answer. What did this animal look like when it was alive? And some of us were probably not even going to get the full picture because of the organism not being there. You know, we only have fossils and animals related to it through the fossil record. But I think everybody's trying to get to the same answer, but everybody has their own different methods of getting to that same answer. Hmm. I have a challenge for you, which is to preface this, like, is there going to be a better dinosaur movie than Jurassic Park? Can something come along and topple that from the throne? And my question to you is, and it's not about necessarily improving Jurassic Park, although that's part of my question, but if you were tasked with making a new dinosaur movie uh, and incorporating concepts, um, you know, from things that you like or dinosaurs or even, you know, notions of maybe it's not just scientists making dinosaurs, but maybe we're going back in time and, you know, seeing <laughs> what the earth was like, what would kind of be that dinosaur movie for you? Ah, good question. So I think I would say 2014's version of Walking with Dinosaurs, if you've seen that one. Uh, I don't know. I actually don't think I've seen that one. That's the Kenneth Branagh one is older, right? That's like. From yeah, that, that's, the, that's the 1990 version. Um, there was another version that came out back in 2014. Um, I, I think it's promoted by BBC, but I, I'm not exactly sure. But, you know, look up 2014's version, Walking with Dinosaurs. Um, it was made as a kids movie, you know, they have voices and that talk and everything like that. But oh. taking that, you know, taking the voice out of it, the dinosaurs were extremely realistic. Um, it, it bases off a story on uh, Alberta's fossil record. So dinosaurs that were found in Alberta, like Gorgosaurus, Pachyrhinosaurus, it follows, a, you know, Pachyrhinosaurus through adulthood and things like that. And uh, I think that probably is an accurate dinosaur movie. Now, I don't know if it will top topple Jurassic Park, but it's kind of more like, I, I would probably say it's more like a documentary because it follows the animals through an environment that used to exist. And then it takes back to a kid going out and fossil hunting and looking and digging up a Gorgosaurus wow. in the backwoods of, I think, Alaska. It's either Alaska, Alberta. I think it's Alaska. 
but they were digging up um a dinosaur in, in Alaska and then they were tracing it back to um the, the likelihood or the, the what these animals were like when they were once living. And I think that particular version for me, I think is probably one of the most accurate dinosaurs to date. Because some of the even the dinosaurs have feathers. Um, oh, cool. there's one dinosaur called um Hesp uh, it was called Hesperonicus, um, which means Western Claw. It's a troodontid, I believe. Um, oh, cool! And um, it has feathers, and so, so you actually have accurate feathers on dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that movie, in my opinion, is probably one of the most accurate dinosaurs dinosaur movies to come up or come out. Um, again, I don't think it's going to topple Jurassic Park. It didn't, you know. But still, I think the dinosaurs, the, how they made the dinosaurs and then tie it back to when they were finding fossils, I think, to me, is probably the most accurate dinosaur movie today. Oh, that's so interesting. I, I would love to see somebody else tackle that format where, again, the, the, you know, the, the thing that we've been talking a lot about, that sense of time of like seeing the life and then flashing forward to then when you're digging up the fossil and kind of thinking about that idea of like, yeah, like you, you said you've said before um like knowing that this thing lived and breathed and existed and had a full life and now you're the first person to see it in millions of years yeah well this has been so much fun my my kind of last question uh ish is uh what advice would you give to somebody who wants to get into paleontology or be involved in science communication or geology in you know in 2020 and kind of what challenges would they would they face good question um, definitely read a lot. Um, definitely read every single thing that you can. Um, definitely, definitely learn how to read scientific literature on scientific papers and learning how to read them, understand them a little bit and annotate them and things like that. Because I think reading for the most part, I think is super, super important. Um, I, doing that is, I think probably one of the most important things, you know, and even if you don't have, you know, many dinosaur books, definitely go out to the library and, you know, read something, maybe read a journal or a magazine or something about fossils and paleontology. Um, movies are not always the best idea because, <laughs> because they don't really give an, an accurate representation of the field. But if you can, um, definitely go out there and collect fossils. You know, whatever state that you live in, I'm sure, has a, a geological survey or a geological map. And learn how to definitely read a geological map and see what type of rocks are in your area and see what types of fossils you'll find. I think definitely getting out there and understanding the rocks um, is really important. Now, I know it's going to be hard because of the whole COVID-19. And so I would honestly say wait until next year or if you are going out wanting to collect fossils, definitely keep safe, wear a mask mm-hmm. and you know social distance. But um, definitely go out there and look for fossils and learn where to find them and how to look for them, how to curate them. Um, another thing I would definitely say is get connected with museums. I'm sure there's maybe a museum in your area, um, a, a small or maybe even a large natural history museum, and maybe even go and talk to the curator, see if they can definitely take you behind the scenes of some of the museum collections. You know, there are plenty of good places where there are good museums out there where they're willing to take you behind the scenes and look at the various fossils and, you know, definitely take pictures, take notes, talk to some of the curators and even talk to some of the scientists that work at the various museums um, of where you're, of where you're looking at. And one thing that I would definitely say is I think the most important is just, just to have passion, be, um, be, um, be creative. Um, definitely think big because there's so many great things out there. And I think the most important thing, we can definitely get discouraged. I mean, I definitely get discouraged on a lot of different days. But I think the best thing to to me is to be passionate about it and to let nothing keep you down no matter what. If this is something you want to do, go for it. If this is something that you feel like you've been wanting to do for your whole life, but you haven't found any opportunities out there, go for it. Reach out to people and definitely have the passion for it because it takes a lot of passion to do something. And I think if you have that passion, I think, you know, passion is one thing that can definitely lead you to some great opportunities and some great places in life. That's so wonderful. Yeah. It's almost like infectious or something where it's like, if somebody sees you passionate, it's like they, they there's sort of an energy there that's sort of transferred or some something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, this has been a blast. I have to get a quick, 
because uh, have you keep up with the Jurassic Park movies, right? Not as much as I should, but I do a little bit. I mean, besides this, you know, uh, I think before the podcast started, we were mentioning like, you know, feathers or, you know, the Dilophosaurus didn't have the, you know, the neck frill. Is there is there an interesting sort of dinosaur correction that you would want people to know um, who've seen the Jurassic Park movies? Velociraptor was a six foot turkey. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't as large as a human. Yes, there are dinosaurs that get that big. There are dino- well, there are raptor dinosaurs that get that big. Um, there's Utah raptor, for example, got about was it was a twenty foot long raptor. Whoa! And with a with, with a huge sickle claw on its toe. Um, another thing that I would say is Velociraptor did not tap its foot like you see in Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. It would have had tendons to hold it off the ground, and it didn't disembowel its prey. It would have used its claw to hook on to prey rather than just slice and dice with it. And so I think that's one thing that I would definitely say is because I saw people with Velociraptor skull. I have a cast of a Velociraptor skull. And people are saying, that's Velociraptor. I'm like, yeah, Velociraptor was did not get as big as you see in the in the Jurassic Park movies. And so I definitely <laughs> would say that the, the little kid was right. We're we're all that little kid, you know. We just wanted <laughs> we, we just want to go to a dig site and learn and, you know, uh I mean, I guess he learned uh, you know, by very uh, uh inconsiderate uh, Mr. Grant, uh, Dr. And, Grant and, e- right. and even in Jurassic Park, we didn't even know dinosaurs were feathered. Well, actually, no, I take that back. It was Jurassic Park. It was 1993. Yeah, yeah. So the first, so the first feathered dinosaur, we knew the dinosaurs probably had a relationship with birds, but the first feathered dinosaur wasn't discovered until 1996. Oh wow! So this was Jurassic Park. Definitely was kind of ahead of its time. No, none of the dinosaurs had feathers, but you know that notion that dinosaurs. And birds had some type of relationship. And then maybe a few years later, finding a feathered dinosaur in China in 1996 really definitely gave, you know, a shocker to the world that, you know, what they were saying in movies of the, you know, hit six foot turkey and the whole bird <laughs> con- controversy was right. Well, my message to uh, the filmmakers uh, of Jurassic World Dominion, the next one to come out, I say put feathers in your Jurassic Park movie. Yes, please do. <laughs> and then <laughs> they just put like random feathers, like a down pillow. And you're like, no, that's not what I meant. I mean, in Jurassic Park 3, they had little tiny feathers on the male velociraptors. But that wasn't, that's not going to do anything. That's not satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> that's not satisfying. I want a feathered dinosaur. I want a fully feathered dinosaur. No questions about it. Colin, Emily, I, if you're listening to this podcast, which I know you are, Frank Marshall, producer of Jurassic World. This is this is our call out to you, Cameron. This has been such a blast. It's such a pleasure to get to nerd out with you and get to learn about your passions and and the work that you're doing and stuff like that. Where can people follow you? Um, you know, keep up with everything you're doing. So I don't have too many things going on right now because of COVID. But hopefully, you know, once COVID, you know, starts to die down a little bit, I'll get back to my normal self and actually be out doing collecting work and volunteering work and things like that. Um, I had an internship um, to the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science doing some field work and working in the lab, but unfortunately that got canceled due to COVID. Ugh. So hopefully I'll be doing that next year and hopefully be going out to some other places. But if people want to follow me, um, I'm on Twitter. Um, it's Paleo Cameron, I believe, is my Twitter handle. And then I'm also on Facebook. So those are the two social medias that I that I use most of the time. So if people want to get in touch with me on Facebook, they can. Um, if people want to get in touch with me with Twitter, they can as well. Awesome. Well, this is, yeah, this has been a blast. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much, Steven. I really had a great time. Thank you for inviting me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.